Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I like the umbrellas. That's good. Like the rest of you took the shade. There's a few that brought umbrellas. I'm good with that. Um, We rejoice together to gather again this Sunday, not in the same way. Uh, And we still lament the truth that not our whole body is gathered together. We know that some are watching right now on livecast and unable to join with us for one reason or another. And that is still sorrowful to us that we cannot be fully together. And we look forward to the day when we'll be able to join together completely. And of course, we talked about last week, it reminds us of the one day when we will all join together with every saint of history around the Lamb, worshiping him together. So we're glad we could be able to gather together today. Um, We miss you who are at home. We want you to be with us. We love you. Uh, And we look forward to that coming back soon. Let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bible. We're going to be in verses 14 through 18 today. Uh, Let me go ahead and read those verses, and then we'll pray together. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile to us, us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we say together that you are God and that you are good. And as Jesus teaches us to pray, that you are holy. We praise you for all that you are. In our hearts, although they're prone to wander so easily, we come together to hear the word preached. We hear from you revelation, understanding who you are. We find pleasure and comfort and security in so many other things, Lord. Our hearts are fickle and they want other things, these idolatries. We ask that you'd forgive us. Warm our hearts for you. Open them up to hear today the truths of your word. Let us taste and see that the Lord is so good. Lord, thank you for supplying every one of our needs. But Lord, we ask that your well of grace would overflow today, even as we open up the word and you give us more of what we need. We need your grace and your help this morning as we come to your word and hear it clearly. Change us through it. Teach us through it. Allow us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we sit here under the word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So he says, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. These last two verses of our passage here, uh, especially verse 17, are reminiscent of one of the prophets. Isaiah is the one that told us these things. In Isaiah 50, uh, 57, 19, God speaks to his people, to those who are still at their homeland, but also those who are far off in captivity, in exile, who are still far away. And he says to them, peace, peace to the far 
and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Now, we know that the Lord, in this time, this is historical, we know that the Lord brought peace to his people. He fulfilled these words. He healed them. He brought their nation back in some manner and brought them back to their land. But we also know that it was never ultimate. In fact, when the, when the temple was rebuilt, some of the older men and women wept because it was not like the former glory that they had known. And they realized that it wasn't as exactly good as they had all hoped and wanted it to be. It was never quite right, and there was also this ultimate longing that wasn't fulfilled in it. There was something greater and better, something that was longer lasting and true. This God had said he would take care of it and provide peace, not only for them, but also peace with the nations, with the Gentiles. Last week in verses 11 through 13, that's where we spent our time, we learned that we were brought near to God. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now we know this is a wonderful truth, a glorious revelation that the Gentiles, you and me, the nations, were brought near in Christ. And it's all been made possible by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death. But inquiring minds would like to know just how did God do this? Why didn't he do it before? Why now? What, what was it that made this happen? What, what was the, the, the transaction that brought this about, the nearness of us Gentiles who previously weren't near, and now we're brought near? How, how does this work? How did God bring us near? And how is it that by the end of this section, Paul is saying that we both have access in one spirit to the Father? That, that, that idea should blow our minds if we understand the distinction between Israel and the Gentiles. Paul's answer is actually a pretty simple one. In verse 14, he says this, the first couple of words. He says, for he himself is our peace. Paul's giving us the answer. On what basis have we been brought near? Well, it's the fact that Jesus is our peace. Well, now maybe, you, maybe you're like me. When I hear that as the answer... I think, okay, that, that seems like kind of a strange answer. I mean, why do we want to talk about peace right now? I mean, aren't we talking about being brought near to God? Don't we need someone to bring us near? Isn't our real need some sort of way to be brought close to God? Isn't it enough that we're in Christ and therefore that we would be close to God? Well, yes, and we already know that the truth is being in Christ brings us close to God. But Paul, I want you to listen for a minute, Paul is not only concerned with us being brought near to God. Now, that is a big, hairy truth. We all should be like, wait, isn't that the biggest problem here? Yes, but he is not only concerned with us being brought near to God. He is also concerned with bringing us near to his people. Incredibly important here. It's a foundational understanding of the Christian church. That God was not okay with just individuals being close to him, but rather that we would also be made close to our brothers and sisters. My dad told me about a friend that he had who was a pastor, and for years, I mean, faithful for decades, he would pastor, and uh, he had a couple different churches that he was a part of, and he faithfully gave his life over to preaching and teaching and loving people, 
And uh, but if, if you know anything about it, people are brutal. <laughs> Uh, they get all the, you know, pastors get criticism. They get different understandings of why, you know, leadership not so great. The last pastor is better. He just doesn't have this or that. And this friend of my dad's really struggled. And one time he got honest with my dad and said, you know, I love everything about this job. Everything about this job is awesome except for the people. <laughs> like, and I think that we get that. And we, we, we actually probably echo it. We understand the church is great. Being close to God is awesome. But the people, man, full of hypocrites and sinners. I mean, they're people that, you know, they, they don't like each other. They're inconsistent. They're always complaining about each other. I mean, these people are the worst. I mean, if it was just for me and God, that'd be great. But for me to be connected with these people, I mean, I'm not so sure I, I really want to do that. Again, I think that we, uh, we might just be hypocrites ourselves when we say these kind of things. We start to realize that we're pointing the finger and the reality is that we're saying the very things about other people that are true of us. God, I'm good with you. I'm good with being close to you, but I don't really want to be with all your people. Let me read you a few verses. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Philippians 2, 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Romans 15, 5-6, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then hear how Christ prays to his Father in John 17. He's praying and he asks this, that they may all be one, Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that you also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The Bible is full of passages that proclaim the same thing. Being near to God cannot be separated from being near to his people. It's extremely important for us to understand. There is not one situation in the scriptures where it's okay to be at odds with the rest of the body of Christ. When your brothers and sisters are obeying God and continuing in grace to pursue him, there's not an opportunity here that's okay for us to be at odds with one another. In fact, we're going to find this out in Ephesians 4, the Bible makes it very clear that we ought to pursue unity. I mean, this is a problem for us. And guess what? It was a problem for these believers here, the early Christian church. In fact, it ran really deep, some real deep-seated problems between people. If you remember, look at verse 11. We, we kind of saw Paul talk about this in an offhand way. It's going to help us see that there were rifts in the church from the very beginning. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you, the Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, hear the sneer there, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Do you see already the calling, the name calling that's going on here? The animosity between the circumcision and the uncircumcision? Can you hear the hostility between them? There is a problem here, and it's rooted in the fact that the Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Even uh, when Christ had come, even when some had said, we are in Christ, the Gentiles, even when they said, we are in Christ, the Jews, they still hated one another and felt a strong distinction between them. There was a great divide between the two peoples. I mean, I'm not trying to be cute, but you talk about social distancing. 
These Jews didn't want to be any closer than six feet to anyone who wasn't a Jew. They wanted their space for sure. And we understand that Paul here is telling us, in this context, with all the animosity and hostility, that Jesus is our peace. Now it starts to make a little more sense, right? Oh, he's doing something more than just the vertical. He's talking a little bit more than about peace with God. He's talking about something that's bigger than this, more important. He's talking about the fact that even those Jews that say they're in Christ and Gentiles that say they're in Christ are at odds with one another. It not ought to be that way because Jesus is our peace. And by the way, when we talk about this, they both seem to be looking to the same thing to justify the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. The law. The law of Moses. The very thing that required circumcision and all the purity commands to be followed so that Jews would be separate from the Gentiles. As they are name-calling and socially distancing and hurling insults at one another, the Jews are justified and they, they know that the law of Moses has told them to separate themselves from the Gentiles. That they are to be a people separate, holy unto the Lord. Now, I won't read it all, but it's worth your time to go back to Leviticus 20 and see what I'm talking about right here. I'm going to read one verse. He's been talking about all these different separation laws. Don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. In verse 26, he says this, You shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. And that's why they weren't to intermarry with Gentiles. That's why they weren't supposed to eat pork. That's why they had to keep these particular feasts throughout the year. That's why they had to be ceremonially clean. That's why they were to remain separate from the nations, from the Gentiles. The law made a clear distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. But we know, we know something's not quite right here. We know that it wasn't meant to create hostility and partiality and arrogance for the Jews. That was never the intention here, but rather to set God's people apart. These purity laws or ceremonial laws were meant to protect the Israelites from destroying themselves with sinful practices and idolatries of the nations, of the Gentiles. It was to showcase the glory of God among his people and to maintain a people who held the promises of God in every way, even to the point that through Israel would come the Messiah. Remember, we talked about this last week, who was given the oracles of God? Israel. Remember that to them belonged adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, all the history, and then most importantly, listen, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. This is Romans, I'm not making this up, this is Romans 9, 4, and 5. It's even right to say here that these laws were meant to keep Israel holy unto the Lord, to keep them a nation that could receive the answer to the promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that the nation of Israel was God's gracious channel of blessing to produce Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Not because they were so great, but because of God's choosing and working through this nation. Therefore, these laws that we're talking about here, these, these ceremonial purity laws, they're not arbitrary. They're important 
They kept Israel distinct God followers, set apart from those that worshiped many other gods and believed the lies of the wicked father Satan. The distinction that God required was never meant to be a basis for pride or partiality or hostility. But reality sets in, and we know, we know because of Romans 5, that even the nation of Israel had a problem. We're not surprised to find that a sinful people used the law to support their own agenda of arrogance, superiority, even hostility and animosity to those who were not from Israel. They turned something good and right, the set-apartness of Israel, into hostility with the Jews against the Gentiles. It's into this reality that Paul tells us Jesus is our peace. you got to have all that sit in the background recognizing why he would say something like this. How can the circumcision possibly have peace with the uncircumcision? How is Jesus making us near to God and near to his people? We already learned from verses 1 through 10 that those that were dead, us, everyone, and Paul includes himself and all the Jews, that we've been made alive together with Christ. But this next question has to do not so much with the vertical, although it continues and is born out of the vertical relationship that we have with God, and now talks about the horizontal relationship that we have with his people. I want you to take a look at your Bible. In verses 14 through 16, we're going to see five things that Jesus has accomplished in regards to peace with God and peace with his people. Number one, he makes Jews and Gentiles into one people. Number two, he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Number three, he abolished, or I like to say nullified, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And he did this so that, number four, he might create one new man. And number five, so that he might reconcile Jews and Gentiles to God. I want you to take a look and see if we can follow along. I'm going I'm to keep my fingers up here to go one by one by one. Ready? Verse 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, some of these things are going to be obvious, more obvious than the others, but it's important that we see how Paul is laying this out here. When we ask the question, how has God brought us near, the answer is again, you're going to hear this over and over again, Jesus is our peace. Not Jesus brings us peace, Jesus is our peace. But when we ask the question, how is Jesus our peace then, the first thing Paul tells us is that he has made us both one. Okay, so when I first read this, I don't even know exactly what he means. I mean, it's actually kind of crazy that he would say something like this. What we would kind of expect him to say was that he's made all the Gentiles into Jews now. And they're all in that way. They're all Israelites now. But that's not what he says at all. He says that Christ has made both people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, into one people group. This is different from anything that we have heard before. He's saying that Christ is making a third group. He goes on to help us understand here. He begins by telling us that Christ has made us both one. But secondly, Paul says that Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So something unique and monumental has happened. We know that already. Paul is saying that Christ has broken down the dividing wall, the distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. 
But he's saying more than that. Because in this phrase, Paul helps us recognize that there are both right and wrong distinctions between the Jews and the Gentiles. Follow with me. Paul tells us that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall. We understand this. He's assuming that we already know what he's talking about in that this dividing wall is the division put there by the law of Moses, what we already talked about, that there's a difference between being separate unto the Lord as a Jew and a Gentile that there has to be a separation from the worldly practices and that the law outlined many different practical things that weren't necessarily morally wrong, but that kept the Jews from intermingling with the Gentiles. Paul is saying that Jesus has broken down this wall. It's a right distinction that was made before, but now that has been broken down, that he has somehow gotten rid of the separation between Jews and Gentiles. And we're not quite sure yet at this point, right? We're not sure exactly how he's done that, but we know he did it. He's broken down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. But there's more than that. It's not just the dividing wall. He gives us another piece here. He says the dividing wall of hostility. Now, hostility is not a good thing. In fact, it sounds like a really bad thing. And that's true. When we talk about hostility, we're talking about animosity. We're talking about hatred for one another. We're talking about being enemies of one another. This is not just like sibling rivalry where we get upset once in a while at each other. We're not talking about that at all. I know there are sport rivalries out there that are pretty heated, and I promise I know a few things about it because I'm from Philadelphia, so I know like instead of throwing tomatoes at the opposite team, they throw batteries. So I understand there can be some pretty heated rivalries, but nothing like this. Nothing like this was at the core. It wasn't about who you cheered for. It was about who you were. The problem wasn't what you said. The problem was what, who you were. That's what we're getting at here. This is more like the Hatfields and McCoys. You're a McCoy. I don't care anything of what you say. I hate you. We're talking about hatred between enemies because of who they are. We're talking about disgust and repugnance by the very thought of the other person being part of that people group. So when Paul uses the word hostility, the dividing wall of hostility, it's not in a way that's just about a difference of opinions. Paul is saying that the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles was not only distinction put there by the law, but there's something more. Over the years, a harsh, sinful, wicked distinction had become the norm between the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul is saying that there existed a wicked heart of hatred and hostility between the two peoples. I mean, this is amazing, isn't it? They're taking the law a good and wonderful thing from God, and they have turned it for their own purposes, to hate and hurt and have prejudice against others. I mean, it's, it's really amazing that the law made a rightful distinction between the Jew and the Gentile, but from that distinction, man took it to mean that they were somehow superior to the other people, that if God had done this, it must mean that somehow I'm better than everybody else. We've already talked at length from Deuteronomy 7. We know that's not true. Regardless, it cropped up in the hearts of the Jews that somehow they were better than everybody else. Since God set them apart and made them holy unto the Lord and set his love on them, that they were somehow better, that they were more important. It got to the point, though, that Jews, you may even know this, the Jews even would say this, this prayer, Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman, who has not made me a slave, who has not made me a Gentile. 
Friends, I think we are guilty of the same problem. I think it's possible that we take God's word and turn it for our own good. What I mean by that is our selfish, wicked, fleshly good. We take good gifts that he has given to us and turn them into occasions for ourselves, for indulgence. I can think of two specific areas. First, idolatry and then self-righteousness. In idolatry, how many times have we taken the good gifts of food, of money, of sex, of power, of family, and turned them into things to serve ourselves instead of to give all honor and glory to the God of these good gifts? How often does our heart pine after these things instead of the true treasure, Jesus Christ, the giver of all good things? The gift is not the problem. It's the heart, the one that receives it, that is so sinful. The same is true as we consider walking in accordance with Christ, doing what he says, obedience to him. We can begin to think that we are better than the rest of the people that don't do so good at following Christ. Those worldly people especially, we're way better than them. But like even the people in our own ranks that love Jesus Christ, and somehow because I do a little bit better at doing these things than they do, I must somehow be better and I look down on those people. We've taken something wonderful, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we've robbed him of the glory and taken it for ourselves, thinking that we are better than someone else. Friends, this is wicked. This ought not to be something that happens to us. Let us not be like the Jews and take something wonderful that God has given to us for our own purposes and our own sinful desires. Paul says first that Jesus made the two groups into one, and he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. But before we move on, I want you to see this little phrase. You look there, it says, in his flesh. This is incredibly important. It's not just an accident. It's incredibly important because it reminds us that Christ did not and could not have waved a magic wand over the two groups of people and said, hey, get along. It's all cool, man. Let's all just back off and just be cool with one another and just love one another. No. That's a wicked philosophy that you will hear in our world over and over and over again. It's not true. It will not do it. Jesus could not do this. It must have been in his flesh. Something had to be done about the animosity. Something had to be done about the true dividing wall that had been set up in the wall, in the law, excuse me. And before we go any further, I want to talk about the next phrase because it's going to tie these two together here. He says that he has broken down the dividing wall, but we have to ask the question, how can Jews join with the Gentiles if their law requires them to maintain their separateness from one another? He answered this in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, how can he say that? How can Paul say that Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? He's saying that the law that stands as a dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been abolished. It's gone. Now, just to make it a little bit clearer here, the word there is going to be a little bit misleading for us as English speakers. Abolishment sounds like totally destroyed, annihilated altogether. That's not the idea here. Rather, I think a better idea here that we would use the word nullified. What I mean by that is it's like something has happened to make those things of no effect anymore. There's still truths and good and all that stuff, but they haven't been abolished as though they were terrible. 
Rather, they've been nullified. Something's happened where they don't be in effect anymore. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until the heaven and the earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Very important words. Paul's telling us that Jesus Christ has done what he said he would do. He has fulfilled the law. He has accomplished all the work of the law, every bit of it. It no longer stands against us with its legal demands. It cannot condemn those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a very important distinction also. No longer does the law stand against those who are in Christ. Why? Because Christ fulfilled the law, every part of it. It's an amazing statement in which we rejoice. I mean, think about all that this means. Christ has obeyed the law perfectly. And this is why I say I wanted to bring the next phrase of this discussion together before we could finish talking about what I meant by in his flesh. In his flesh, that's in his very incarnation, him taking on flesh as a man, his living, his dying. Jesus did everything that needed to be done to fulfill the law. He was separate from the Gentiles. He was from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, the King David himself. He was, he was from that line. He was a Jew, and he was then, therefore, the long-awaited Messiah. He was also conceived of the Holy Spirit, and so he was not in the loins of Adam and did not inherit a sin nature. He was born sinless. He perfectly obeyed every demand of the moral law of God so that he could actually get this. He could actually be saved by works. No one else can say that. No one else can say it. We think it's a dirty word, works. Think about the fact that Jesus could say it. He's the one that actually did every work possible, rightly done, and he fulfilled everything that God demanded of him. And because he was the son of God, most importantly for us, he could act as our substitute. Christ was the end. Think about this. In his death, finally, we saw what the whole sacrificial system in Leviticus was all about. It all came into focus as we watched the perfect Lamb of God take on the sins of the people. And as he did this, he died in our stead. He was our substitute, taking on himself the sin and therefore the punishment that we deserved for our sin. Christ is the end, the fulfillment of the law. He did it. And with this perfect obedience, there came a new era. Something has changed completely because the Messiah has come and has done the work that God said he would do. For those that are in Christ, the law has been nullified. For those who are not in Christ, the law still has power to condemn. It's very important that we understand this. The law is still in effect. It didn't go away, but for those that are in Christ, it has been nullified. In Christ, it can no longer condemn us. But for those of us who trust him, who love him, their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. The glory of the law is that it has no power over us because one has done it completely. Hallelujah. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself into the side here, but it's on purpose. Go with me for a minute. In his living, in his suffering, Jesus proved to be the Messiah. When he lived perfectly and died without sin and rose from the grave, there was no need 
for these purity laws any longer. Think about what he did. Jesus, the Messiah, the perfect one, had come. Our set-apartness that we saw in the law, especially Leviticus 20, was now found in him. Jesus Christ, true Israel, the one who had done everything that we could not do. Jesus did it. Jesus did what Israel was supposed to do but never could. And when he nullified the law, when he fulfilled it and nullified the need for those purity laws, the nation here now, their need for doing these things had come to an end. The national distinction between the Jew and the Gentile expressed in the purity laws had been done away with. Now, as much as that blows our mind, can you think of how much it must have blown the mind of those who followed the law? Think about Peter, right? When he goes up in Acts 10 and he sees that sheep full of unclean animals and he's told to kill and eat. He's like, no way. I can't do that. I'm supposed to be set apart. I can't do that. No wonder it was so difficult for him to understand this. Yes, in Christ, the law has been fulfilled. And this national distinction, though, is no longer necessary. And the disciples really had to be taught this was true and understand this. If you think about Acts 15, the same thing goes for circumcision. They were trying to understand, what should we teach these Gentile believers? Should they do all the same things that all the rest of the Jews did? Like when we used to invite them in and become proselytes, become Jews? And the response at the end of the council is, no, they are not to become Jews Something different has happened. They do not need to submit to circumcision to be a believer. And all the Gentiles rejoiced, especially the males. The distinction that was mandated in the law was now found in being holy unto God in Christ Jesus, not being a Jew. And this is what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. Look at the result of this in verses 15 and 16. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Not only does he fulfill and nullify the law, not only does he break down the dividing wall of hostility, but now, get this, he creates in himself one new man. Again, he's not saying that the Gentiles are becoming Jews. He says in himself, in Jesus, in the Christ, he is creating a new humanity. Through faith in Christ alone, Jews and Gentiles are now one corporate person. They are now one new humanity. And then you can see there, Paul kind of explains to make sure everyone's clear on this, so making peace. He's trying to bring something up here. He's showing us that what Jesus is doing is peacemaking. And if you wondered the identity of who this new man is, let's read verse 16. Who is it that's this new man? Verse 16 says, And might reconcile us both to God in one body. I know you know that word. I know you're familiar with the New Testament and its use of the term body of Christ. Who is this new man? It's the one body of Jesus Christ. It's the church. In himself, Christ creates one new man, the body of Christ. His people, those who love and trust him and him alone. That's why we take the very name Christian. That we are little Christs. That our entire identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And notice that the peace that we have here with each other is actually based on having peace with God. He says, and might reconcile us both 
to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In verse 16, we shouldn't miss the commonality between Jew and Gentile isn't about us trying to love each other. No, it's about being reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is really important for us to get. I want you to listen here. There is no peace without Christ. No true, lasting, ultimate peace without Jesus Christ. Sorry, my iPad apparently has cooled down. Well, here we go. Lord, help me. There is no lasting peace without Jesus Christ alone. This speaks into our situation severely. Right now, more than any other time that we probably have experienced in our own lives, is there a call for justice and peace and unity? None, however, except hopefully by Christians and the church, are being called together to do this on the basis of Christ. I want to speak to you as your brother, because I don't have any notes here anyway. What we're learning here, the truth of this passage is showing us the reconciliation that we can experience between us and one another, between Jew and Gentile, between black and white, between women and men, between rich and poor, all of them can only happen ultimately and properly in Jesus Christ. This is dangerous for us to think otherwise. Now, we are going to spend some significant time talking about the race debate and helping us to understand what's going on and what our actions ought to be as Christians, ones who value life highly, every nation, every tribe, kindred, tongue, and people. I think in the next, not this coming one, but the following live stream discussion, we're going to get together and we're going to have a discussion about our times, what's going on, and how we ought to respond as Christ followers. But I will say this. Ultimate reconciliation cannot come between all of us by trying our best and really willing ourselves to be more together. Only true ultimate reconciliation will come in Jesus Christ. And so we ought to love one another, those people around us. I don't care who they are. Made in God's image, we ought to love them. But I'll tell you this. Our expectation of it becoming something wonderful and utopian without Christ is a farce. And it will never hold together. It will never be permanent. There will never be true reconciliation between mankind and mankind without there being reconciliation between God and man. So we must understand that this passage is showing us first and foremost that the reconciliation that happened between the Jews and the Gentiles, which was unbelievable, was enacted because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and their union with him. That means the way that we can have reconciliation between people that we would otherwise hate can only first and foremost happen by us being reconciled to God. That's the only way. And as I speak to our scenario around us now, as we consider the great divide that's happening even in our own country between black and white, between even rich and poor, and other races, and this continues to happen for us. Let us continue to hold tightly to Jesus Christ. That ought to be the sole motivation for us to love all of humanity, for us to understand what it means for justice, for us to understand what it means to love mercy. These things are all coming out of that. 
But let me tell you this, that is not the main point of our text, that somehow we would go after reconciliation just sideways. The main point here is that Jesus Christ has done something so that we can be reconciled to God, and therefore it breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, whichever wall we're talking about. And so we find our true center in God and God alone. I'll say a few things and close this up. For those who are unbelievers, you don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're new. We welcome you. We're so glad to have you today to enjoy this beautiful day together. But maybe you don't know Christ. May I just tell you this? You don't need religion. You don't need ritual. You don't need to become a Jew. You need one thing. In fact, you need one person. You need Jesus Christ. May I call you to repent of your sin and to come to him and him alone. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm speaking to some people who think they're a believer. Your whole life you thought you were a believer. But you recognize that you hold tightly to many other things instead of Christ and Christ alone. It is only through him. Think about what it did to, the, to, to Israel, abolishing the laws and commandments expressed in ordinances. What rituals and religion are you holding on to that somehow you think that's your salvation? It's not. Christ and Christ alone can save your soul. It's only through faith in Christ that we will ever know true reconciliation with the Father and with one another. Christian, believer, those who love Jesus Christ, I'm going to call you to a couple things today. Remember how important it is to Jesus that we're reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. That means there ought not be anything that gets in the way of us pursuing unity together with Christians. If there's disobedience, we know how to handle that, how to work through that. Matthew 16 and 18 help us understand what we're to do. Call them back to obedience. But if we're talking about like quibbles about silly things or things that somehow get in the way for us, we ought not to allow that to get in the way. We must trust him and him alone and love our brothers and sisters. He has made us one body, one new man. He has made us into his own. Lastly, I'll just encourage you, remembering what has happened in Jesus Christ. I mean, we just taught a lot about the reconciliation that happened. It is mind-blowing that no one else in history could do this. I, I was talking to some brothers earlier on this week. Knowing what we know now, can you imagine being there being ready, watching Jesus on the cross. He's not dead yet, right? Thinking, knowing what we know now, if he sins, this is, everything's lost. If he gets bitter or he screams curses at people or if he does anything and comes off the cross, all is lost and it's not actually the Messiah. But as we watch him there, hanging, having a perfect life, fulfilled the law, he's seconds away from death. And if he makes it, we get redemption. We get reconciliation with the Father. And as he dies, and as we weep, we also praise God for what he has done in Jesus. The Messiah actually came, the one who could actually fulfill every demand of the law. And so in his flesh, in his death, he killed the hostility so that we might have reconciliation with the Father and reconciliation with his people. This is a glorious truth, and I would call us to praise him for it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your great love in Jesus Christ. We're completely dependent on you. We thank you for the saints 
Lord, our, our own partiality and our own pride and our own problems, Lord, creep up in our heart. They run deep, Lord. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to not give in continually to these things, but repent of them. And by the Spirit's power and through faith in Christ, we would kill these things, mortify these things. We thank you for your great love in giving us the church, that you've made us one body. We're amazed, Lord, that we, the nations, can be glad in Jesus. We ask that we would tell forth your message, that the world needs one message, which is the love of Jesus Christ for them and for us, therefore, to enact that love in everyday situations. We rely on you, God, and ask for your great work of grace in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.